All right, sweet. Let's do this. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 18. We've been making our way through this. It's simple. We're calling it Prophets and Kings. Our hope is to see the story of the gospel just in the story of the kings and prophets. Uh, We know that Jesus, the gospel, was not introduced in Matthew. It was introduced in Genesis. And there's something really powerful about seeing these types or pictures or foreshadows of just who is this king that's going to come and save? Who is the king of kings, the priest of priests, the prophet of prophets? Who is this one that's going to come on the scene and finally usher in this kingdom that we've all been looking for and waiting for? And his name is Jesus. But we see these beautiful stories or glimpses of the gospel in the Samuels, in the Kings, in the Chronicles. So that's why we want to go through it. We're going to spend a lot of time in it. I feel like we're making a pretty good pace, but we're in 1 Samuel 18 now. Uh, Two weeks ago, we were introduced to the life of David. And I feel like all of this has kind of been culminating in getting to the story of David, this king that God has chosen. The people wanted a king. God gave them the king they wanted. That was Saul. And now God's like, I'm going to give you the, the king you need, and that's David. So David's introduced to that shepherd boy from Bethlehem who's filled with the Spirit. He's clearly God's choice to be king. Samuel anoints him. Last week, if you missed it, we saw David in that, you know, infamous battle between David and Goliath. Um, And hopefully, maybe in some ways, as we went through like 50 verses of that, maybe there's little details you haven't seen before. But we see that idea that I think so often in David and Goliath, we have that idea that we're David and we're going to fight these Goliaths, when in reality, we're more the crowd just watching as the true David, Jesus, is fighting the Goliath of Goliath's sin, hell, death, that his victory is our victory because he won, we win. Um, And there's something about just looking at the story of David and Goliath in that way. Now that brings us to chapter 18. And here in chapter 18, uh, we're going to see kind of the next few chapters and even past this be kind of the, the, the difficulty for David moving ahead. Um, We're going to see this relationship between Jonathan and David build up. We're going to see Saul's jealousy towards David. We're going to see just years of fighting and fleeing. And really today, I think, will be kind of a precursor to more of this. Um, But the topic today, the title today, and I think really what we see here in chapter 18, I'm very excited. uh, It's the power of friendship and the destruction of jealousy. Uh, Here's what we see in chapter 18. The power of friendship between Jonathan and David. It's like an unbelievable and unique friendship that we see in the Bible. And we also see the destruction of jealousy. And it's interesting how so often those can go hand in hand. But I want to talk about this. I'm honestly been praying like this week, like, Lord, bring in true, true friendships. Not just shallowness, not just I remember seeing you, I know you, we say the same thing every week, but bring true depth. And also remove just jealousy. I think that plagues many of us that maybe we don't talk about or want to acknowledge and I'm just praying that God would just bring deliverance from maybe just a jealous heart in our generation. Um, so let me just say this. As we look at chapter 19 and 20 next week, that will almost be like a part two. Because we're kind of introduced to the conversation of Jonathan and David, this covenant that takes place. And then we see like what friendship looks like and how it develops. So we'll probably even do more next week specifically on friendship. Um, but we're going to see that unfold and we're going to see that develop. And just really unique stories. I'm very thinking, you know, when you really study the Bible, it's interesting. For me, like reading this over and over again, there's so many details in this ancient literature. I mean, you think about this like a thousand years before Christ. And you think about the details and nuances and just what's shared in these stories. It's profound to me. It's worth slowing down. That's why we're reading through it. That's why we're going through it. Um, So I want to look at that today, the power of friendship and the destruction of jealousy. You guys ready? Cool? You guys good? Uh, How about we do this? Let's pray before we just jump in because a lot of reading and um, yeah, let's just invite the Lord to speak. Father, we just want to say thank you. We thank you that um, we can just stop 
we're doing. Slow down. Just praise you, sing to you. Join in with churches around our country, around the world, that are just acknowledging you and saying, Jesus, you are Lord. God, we ask that um, we would not just read this and that it would be interesting or that it'd be just another Bible study. But Holy Spirit, we do ask that you would make us more, more like your son, Jesus, more like you. That God, you do something within our hearts. God, that you just produce life, that you set us free from bondage, from sin. That uh, Jesus, as we walk through this, that you would be seen in a beautiful way, that you are worth following. And uh, Lord, we just need you. We ask that you'd speak and move in your name. Amen. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I want to hopefully stir up some old emotions. I'm not, I don't know if we have the pictures already, but um, how many of you had one of these growing up? Luis, I can't see the TV, so I'm just trusting that you're putting it up there. How many of you had one of these? You guys remember those little heart necklaces that was up there? If not that, come on, someone had to have one of those. 90s kids? No 90s kids in here? Really? Okay. All right. How about one of these? The little bracelets? You guys remember that? Uh, no? Don't lie. You guys are just like ashamed. There we go. Okay, thank you. I remember my sister. No, I never had one of the heart necklaces. <laughs> Don't, you know. Um, but I remember seeing those, and I remember seeing the little friendship bracelets. And I remember as a kid, like if you grew up in the 90s, this was kind of our way as like befriending someone. You know, even when I, when I see my son go to the park and he just like meets someone really quick, they'll play something. He's like, hey, do you want to be friends? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, oh, that was so easy. Was so, so quick. It's kind of unbelievable. You know, like this was our way of like Facebook friending someone. Like, here's a bracelet. Like, oh, that means we're best friends. Like, yeah. We, you know, best friends don't, you know, we hug. I don't know. But it's just funny. It's funny to like watch that develop in my son's life. And it's just, I, I look back at this and I go, man, it is really weird today. I'm not sure what it is. I feel like every generation maybe has different struggles with friendship. I don't know. And it's maybe you're part of like a generation or time where you're like, you know, I can do it alone. I'm good. I can, I can do this by myself. I can do life by myself. I think we live in a moment and generation that we're like a mile wide, an inch deep when it comes to friendships. We maybe know a lot of people. It's really, I mean, you guys know this, but we are the most connected generation I think that's ever existed. We can know what's going on in someone's life. And it's just bizarre. Like, oh, I know what happened to you last week. I saw your story. On, it's, it's so weird. So we're very connected, but we're also very disconnected. We're very disconnected from deep, meaningful relationships. There's a lot of misunderstanding in that because we, we get a tiny little glimpse of someone's life and obviously we, we kind of maybe associate certain things with that or maybe dismiss them that way. It's not maybe a true presentation of that person. Here's what I'm saying. We need healthy friendships. I think this is one of those things in scriptures where we don't, like, what are some examples we have? I think Jonathan and David is one of the most uh, beautiful uh, and, and kind of detailed friendships that we see in the Bible. It's very unique. It's probably one of the most classic friendships like you will ever read about in ancient literature. It's probably the most classic friendship you could ever read about. You know, when you think about today and like, you know, modern day friendships, um, I can't not think about probably my favorite duo, which is The Rock and Kevin Hart. I think they're like some of the best, <laughs> they're the funny little friendships. Like that's like our modern day friendships. Um, I think we also, who do we have? We have, I was thinking about Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. I'm like thinking about their friendship. Yeah, that's a modern day friendship. I think about uh, the old school I grew up on watching I Love Lucy. So Lucille Ball and Ethel Mertz, that was, or Hertz, whatever her name is. I remember just like seeing that friendship. And I think that my kid's favorite friendship is Woody and Buzz. Like these are some classic friendships, right? Um, this goes down to me as the most classic friendship. Uh, here's what Warren Wearsby says. He says, in all of literature, David and Jonathan stand out as example of devoted friends. I mean, we're going to see a really rich friendship happening here. Uh, this is unique to me. Again, I don't know if we value this. I think sometimes you go, well, if I'm married, that's my, I'm good. I have, I have a spouse. Therefore, I don't maybe need friends. 
Or maybe you, you think like, I have a lot of friends socially, I have a, a friends at work, but maybe people don't know the real you. Maybe a lot of people have parts of you, but who truly knows the deep core of you? I love what C.S. Lewis wrote about, um, he wrote about the four loves, and in the four loves, his book, he talks about just a chapter on friendship, and he, he writes this. He says, the first and most obvious answer is that few value it, few value friendships, because few experience it. Now, why don't we value it? I think we maybe don't value it enough. Why? Because probably, we probably don't experience it. I think in a lot of ways, we all want a good friend. We all want someone to challenge us, or we say that. But when push comes to shoves and we get, get, kind of get in that moment, or they see like the, the hidden part of your heart that you never revealed to anyone, like, and will they accept me? Will they love me? Will they criticize me? Will they dismiss me? Like what happens when they really see the true me? Maybe we're afraid to kind of put ourselves in that vulnerable situation. You know, I think all of us want that. But the question is, are we willing to be that for someone else? Are you willing to be that friend when it's not being reciprocated from someone else? Like, even if they never get to that level, even if they never show you, maybe they're even using you. But are you willing to, like, like say, you know what? I'm going to keep putting myself in these vulnerable moments, even if it hurts me, because I know at the end of the day, this could possibly break down their walls and actually finally get to meaningful relationship. I just think this is something that we have to get to. Obviously, in the New Testament, it talked about it, like, in this idea of friendship or community as koinonia. It's just this idea of, like, deeply, strongly rooted uh, community or friendship built on something. For us, it's built on the gospel of Jesus, his word. It's built on something. So I want to, like, look at this because I really do hope and pray, especially for our day and age, that if a lot of people have bits and pieces of you, that maybe you have that one or two or three people who you're fully known and you fully know them. And you know, this is a safe place. You know, anything and everything can be shared. You know, there'll be prayer. There'll be loyalty. There'll be encouragement. They'll challenge you. They'll fight you like a brother. Like they'll do what they have to do because they love you. I really hope we can kind of get past, I think, what we've experienced for so long, which is like a lot of people know me a little bit. What if a few knew us a lot of it? <laughs> and I would love to kind of get to that. And then what we're going to see also spur from this is just crazy and an insane amount of jealousy. And so I want us to like dive in. We're in, again, 1 Samuel chapter 18. Here's how we're going to kind of break up our text today. Um, and just so you can follow along with me, we're going to see the devotion of friendship, the deception of praise, the destruction of jealousy, and the dowry of marriage, one of the weirdest stories in the Bible we're going to read about today. All right, let's do this. First uh, Samuel chapter 18. Let's look at the devotion of friendship. Chapter 18, verse 1. Let's read it. It says, As soon as he, David, have finished speaking to Saul, Listen to this. The soul of Jonathan, Saul's son, was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and he gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. This is a really unique thing happening. I don't want to pass over. There's some crazy details in this. Uh, keep in mind, Jonathan is the son of Saul. Saul is the king of Israel. Uh, from man's perspective, Jonathan would be the rightful king, the next rightful king. Uh, remember, people really don't know yet in a public way that David's been anointed king. He's the next king. But in, in some ways, like Jonathan, that's his next place in line. He's, he's supposed to be the next king. And yet Jonathan's soul is knit to David. 
Uh, he has a deep love for him. It, it's really clear on that. I want to kind of also clarify, it seems as if uh, people who, who kind of, you know, study this, Jonathan is probably around 20 to maybe 30 years older than David. It's possibly even like that father-son type of heart for him. Like almost like, wow, look at this young boy. He just slayed the giant. Everyone was afraid to fight this giant. This guy did it. There's something special about it. There's something unique about him. And his soul's knit to him. Now, this is really unique because it says he made a covenant with David. We don't really see a lot of that. Like that kind of goes back to this friendship bracelet thing. It's like this, this covenant is happening between David and Jonathan. Now, what does that mean or what does that look like? This is really interesting. This is actually this covenant of friendship in some ways. It's mentioned three times in 1 Samuel. Listen to this. 1 Samuel put up here. Uh, chapter 18, Jonathan made a covenant with David. Chapter 20, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. 23, and the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. This is different. I mean, there's a strong covenant being made between them. There's almost like, I'm going to be devoted to you regardless. Remember, Jonathan's dad is Saul. So you're going to see Jonathan's loyalty throughout the next couple chapters in 19 and 20. He's going to be incredibly loyal to David. And there's really something, because that was his rightful place. He was the next rightful king, and he's willing to lay it down. The reason why I guess I want to get into this this is a different type of friendship. You know, we live in a kind of vendor type consumer relationship with so many people. We almost have a relationship with the world. Like as long as you fulfill my needs, as long as you do what I want you to do, we will have a relationship. And we kind of have like a work relationship with so many people. We almost treat, and it's funny, a lot of sociologists talk about this uh, on, from every spectrum say, you know, we kind of approach friendships almost like we approach businesses today. You know, it's almost like, oh, you know, as long as you are there for me, I'll be there for you. As long as you and I can share this common thing, but once maybe you're not there, once you fail or disappoint me, I'm going to move on to someone or something else. And we kind of treat relationships maybe like we treat like a business. It's like almost like, oh, I got my order wrong. I'll go to a new restaurant. I'll take my business elsewhere. We do the friendships. Like, oh, oh, you said this. I won't reconcile. I'll take my business elsewhere. We almost treat friendships sadly like that today. Try to put it down this way. Consumer relationships, they say your individual needs and rights take precedent over the other. That's a consumer relationship. Your needs and rights take precedent over the other. A covenant relationship says your needs and rights come after responsibility to the other. So it's like, no, I, I'm, I'm willing, I'm willing to maybe not have my needs or meds because I'm, I'm, like, I'm in. Here's the idea. I, I think so often, like the gospel basically says to you and I, you would like to think, you know, you're in a covenant relationship with people. Like you're always gonna be there, but you're probably more of a consumer than you think you are. I think the gospel says to you and I, that you have to be willing. You have to be willing to let people use you. And you have to keep going back to them and saying, but I'm gonna fight for this relationship. It is really interesting. No one wants to be used. Uh, I understand the pain of that when you feel like, why do they even care? Why do they reach out? Do they even care about me or this person? Do they even, like, what, what is that about? There's a side of the gospel that says, you have to be willing to be used time and time again and go back and fight for that relationship. Like, how, how often do we, in a sense, go to Jesus only when we need something? How often do we reach out to him and call upon him only when we're in trouble? And the crazy thing is he, he's still willing and ready to dive back into that relationship with us. He's still willing and ready to say, hey, I, you know, I mean, obviously from his perspective, I know you're like using me, but I love you. And, and I'm willing to work with you. And I'm willing to keep pursuing you and loving you. And hopefully it goes from like a consumer type of relationship you have with God to this covenant relationship with God. Hopefully the people in your life, it goes from like this consumer type relationship to like actually this deep, meaningful relationship. How do we get there? Like, what does that look like? You know, you, you think about, again, David, just his connection to Jonathan, Jonathan's connection to David. They made a covenant with each other in 23. There's just, you see this bond that is unbelievable. And I think it's built on something. And I want to get to that even more next week. 
But here's what I do see. I do see from the very beginning, God's design is for us to be in deep relationship. What's crazy to me is we serve a God who, when he made us, said, you, it's not just me and you. It's not good for you to be alone. It's crazy on Genesis 2.18, God's like, it's not good for man to be alone. God is so not jealous, so not envious in that way, where he's like, actually, you need each other. It's not good for man to be alone. Here's, here's a woman. It's crazy to think that God realizes that we need each other. Like, let me create someone for you because you need each other. I want you to think about this. When we talk about the triune God, God at his very essence, you could say, is friendship. When we even use the word God or Elohim, obviously we believe and worship one God. There's one God who eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And within the Trinity, there's deep relationship, deep friendship, deep submission one to another, we read in 1 Corinthians 15. It's a really unique thing, but here, I want to say at the very core of God is what? Friendship. You can say that God has also made us in his image. So what has God made us for? Friendship. I think that's why we see like God create man and woman together. This idea that you need each other. What I'm trying to get at is we got to stop trying to do life on our own. Here's the thing. David's about to go on the wildest journey for several years from Jonathan's dad. And I do believe that God's like, you need someone to be with you through this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make someone walk through this journey with you. We'll see more of that again in the next couple. It's unbelievable some of the things they're about to go through. And you see God's like, you're not going to do this alone. You can't do this alone. Yes, I'm with you. That's why David's successful. God's with him. But even then, God's like, you need a Jonathan. Listen, I really think we have to, have to carve out space in our lives for deep and meaningful relationships. We have to. If you think you can do this Christian life on your own, you are greatly deceived. If you think, I got this, I'm good. I'll come to this like, corporate gathering and then I'll leave and never see anyone again until next week. Like, we're missing the point. There has to be the sense of like, we're doing this together. And I'm praying and hoping that God can uniquely bring that in. Like, listen, I get it. It's, it's sometimes gonna be weird. You want it to happen naturally. I get it, right? When I do the meet and greet, you're like, oh, this is, I hate this. All right, guys, meet each other. You're like, no, I don't want to, why? Why? Some of you are like, oh, I hate that. You don't like that at all. And I get it. It can be weird. Like if you meet the, like, the wrong person, like, hey, nice to meet you. What's your name? What's your social security number? What's your address? I love you. What? Like, huh? Like it's weird. You could, it could be weird. It could also happen in like a non-natural way. I, and I know that it can't be forced. I think deep friendships are really are discovered. But at the same time, there has to be this, you know what? I got to press into this. Like, I, I got to double down on this. Like, I got to create time and space and vulnerability. You're going to see really unique moments where they go, wow, they actually cared a lot about like, yes, please don't think it's okay to go, well, it's just me alone or me and my spouse. We're good. I, I really hope in this process, in this life, you have that person or two you can go deep with. See, here's what's really interesting. If you look at verse one through five, he shares like everything with David. He strips himself of his robe, his sword, his bow. It says his soul is tied to another. I love how Agent Rogers put this. He says he's sharing his personhood, his soul, his possessions, his sword and everything, and he's, his power. Like the idea of his robe, it's like, I'm laying down my right for you. This is, he's sharing everything. Think about this, actually. It's really unique. When you read about Jonathan, commentators disagree. They're like, is he a picture or type of Jesus or a picture of us, like us responding to Jesus? And I would say yes, both. Like, here's what I mean. When you meet Jesus, the true Messiah, you go, I'm going to lay everything down. I'm taking off my robe. I'm going to lay down my sword, what I'm fighting for. I'm going to lay everything down and say it's yours. There comes a point in time when you meet Jesus and you go, I'm done wearing my clothes. It's yours. I'm done trying to fight my battles. Here's my sword. The idea of Jonathan giving his sword to David is basically making himself very vulnerable to David. Here's my sword. Here's my sword. This makes me vulnerable. I really think there's something beautiful about this. Jonathan, like us to Jesus saying, God, I lay it down. I'm done. My robe, my sword. I, I don't want to fight anymore. I'm a, you, 
You are the true king of kings. You defeated Goliath. You're that person. I lay it down. And at the same time, Jonathan, is, you could say, and I love how people point this out, Jonathan throughout the next the story is really like that type of Christ. He's saying, I'm royalty. Let me lay down my robes and come to you. Let me make this covenant with you. I'm going to lay down my sword, my robes, my position, my office, and I'm going to come to you. Jonathan's a beautiful picture of how we respond to Christ and how Christ responded to us. The gospel is so both. And it's like, what comes first? What comes first is God saying, let me lay it down for you. I'm going to set aside my robes. I'm going to leave heaven come to earth. Philippians 2, this is the gospel. God who just esteemed him. Like he took on this humility in a very unique way. And then you also see this response back to Jesus saying, Jesus, I'm going to lay down my robes for you. I want to be robed in your righteousness. I want to be clothed in your clothing. And there's this unique response that you see between Jonathan and David. And here's the thing again. I want to explore more what, it, what friendship will looks like. All I can say is it begins and ends with covenant. The beginning, the middle, and the end. There's, three, there's the covenant, the same covenant, like repeated three times. But there's this deep commitment, this deep devotion. I would say fight for this. Please, like we try, I know it, ha- it can't happen like by force, but try to find that. Try to find people to do life with who will pursue Christ with you and challenge you and not just say the things that you want to hear, but the things you need to hear. The person will say the hard thing, not because they don't like you, but it's because they do like you. This is what we see happening. Yes? Amen? Now we're going to see the deception of praise. We saw the devotion of friendship, but now we're going to see this deception of praise. This is really interesting. First uh, Samuel 18, verse 6. Here's what it says. As they were coming home, when David re- returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out all of the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David is tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry (laughs) and the saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Now this is really interesting, right? David just defeated Goliath. They're walking back to town, and it says they sing to Saul. It's almost like they're trying to make a point. Like, Saul slayed his thousands, and David is tens of thousands. Like, that's a song. They're singing one to another. I mean, you know that would get under your skin. Like, you're the king. And they're singing, like, this is like the number one hit on top 10 Israeli Jewish songs. I have no idea. But it's like going down. And you just think, like, what would that do to him? Like, what would that do to, like, his heart? And he's like, oh, from that day on, he eyed him. You know, and here's what I find, like, really interesting, obviously. Um, Praise does reveal a lot. When someone praises you or doesn't praise you, it reveals a lot about you. You know, when they praise David, what's going to come out of David, we're going to read next, is just crazy humility. And what we're going to read out of Saul is just crazy jealousy. Praise is really interesting. And when you don't get praise, when you think you deserve praise, what comes out of your heart? When your boss does not see it, when your spouse does not see it, when your friend does not, like what, what is revealed at that point in time? Like, well, they didn't even see that. Maybe they, maybe they sung someone else's praises, right? It's so funny how we can do this. You just have something to wife. Like, it's just so, so silly. I like last sometimes, like my wife's like, oh my gosh, look what Micah did. He took out the, the trash. I'm like, I always took out the trash. Praise me. I don't know. But it, it's always so funny. It's like these little things can just come out of us. Like what comes out of us in those moments? And you see what David, you see crazy humility. You're gonna see insane amount of humility. Like he doesn't fall for the trap or the lie of praise. I think one of the greatest dangers sometimes is you actually begin to believe the praise about you. At a very, I don't want to say at a very young age, it was like 10 years ago, I had a leader pull me aside and was trying to encourage me. And it was really weird, but it was, it was so needed. He's like, hey, it's after like a message and kids got saved and it's really sweet. And he goes, hey, that's awesome last night. Great message, great word, but that's not you. I know the real you. Your wife knows the real you. 
meaning everyone's praising your name right now. Don't fall for that trap. Don't believe that lie. You're not great. God is great. <laughs> you didn't save anyone. God saved everyone. And it was just like this very, like, I needed to hear. And it, I don't even think it was, like, getting to my head. I don't think. But I think it's almost like, let me say this before it corrupts you. <laughs> and, it, like, stayed with me of, like, hey, if you begin to believe the lies of praise, like, it's going to lead to your corruption. Like, the problem was there, who are they praising for defeating the, the giant? Who are they praising? David. Who defeated the giant? Not David. He's like, the Lord is with me. The Lord will win this battle. David knew who won the battle, but the people didn't. David knew. David knew. God's the one who defeated this giant Philistine. Not me, but the people didn't know that. And there is something about that. Here's what it says in Isaiah 2.22. I love this. It says, don't put your trust in mere humans. They are as fail as breath. What good are they? How often do we put our, 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 just our trust in humans? In the science community, in the educational community. I'm just saying, don't, we put our trust so often in humans and they will fail. They will fail. We, way too often we do. David understood this. David's like looking at his life going, what is man that you're mindful of him? Do you guys remember that? Psalm 8. Let me just put this up here. David knew this. Psalm 8. David says, when I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them. Like, who are we compared to you, God? How is it that you actually care so deeply for us? And he ends the psalm and says, Oh Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. You know what I love about that? They're saying David has killed his tens of thousands. And David's like, your name fills the earth. You know, we're going to see the psalms, I feel like, throughout this, as we read the Samuels, we're going to see so many psalms be paralleled with his life in an unbelievable way. And I do believe Psalm 8 is that. It's going, they might be singing my name, but your name fills the earth. I don't want to lose sight of you, God. Like, it's, not my, it's not me what I did. And there's also a time where you can believe the criticism of men and that gets to your heart. Do you remember how Eliab goes, who are you? Why are you here? Remember Eliab, David's brother, last week, chapter 17? He's like, why are you here? We know why you're here. You're here for like glory, basically. He's calling out David and that criticism could have got to him deeply. And it's weird how praise can like build your head and how criticism can destroy your heart. And I love how the gospel is just so rooted and centered and saying, no, no, no. Like it's not about, you know, giving you a big head or it's not about like destroying your heart. It's about having this reality check of who you are in light of the gospel. So uh, there's, a, there's a little book I want to recommend to everyone. It's like 99 cents. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's a weird title, I know. The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Uh, Tim Keller wrote it. It's basically on 1 Corinthians 4. It's saying, you either think of yourself too highly or too lowly, both are pride. It's a really interesting little take on life. You don't think of your, maybe you think too lowly and it's like a false humility. You think of yourself too high and it's like a, you know, it's a crazy pride. But he talks about how to find this, this freedom of self-forgetfulness and he writes this in his book. It's really profound. He says this, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. There's some freedom in this. I just think that you saw Saul be, Saul was more moved by the praise than David was. Saul's eyeing David from this point on. Saul's jealousy goes to another level. Don't forget in chapter 16 at the end, it says that Saul loved David greatly. I mean, in like one little chapter, we see now this like hatred for David. This praise went to him more than it did to David. Here's a verse I just want to leave you with, but this is so profound to me. Proverbs 27, 21. Listen to this. Fire tests the purity of silver and gold, but a person is tested by being praised. 
So fire tests the purity of silver or gold. Obviously, fire can reveal like the dross, the, the impurities. It brings that to the surface. Fire tests that. The same way, praise brings that stuff, that dross, those impurities to the surface. Does it build up your head? Does it tear you down? Like, what does it do? What happens when someone else gets praised? Are you the Saul type of response? What happens when you get praised? Do you begin to believe the praise? Fall for that trap? You see, there's a deception to praise. And I I just think that David has a a right response, at least in this moment. It's so beautiful. So we'll keep going. We saw the devotion of friendship, the deception of praise. Now we're going to see the destruction of jealousy. Uh, Don't forget Saul's eye and David. Let's look at verse 10. Verse 10, here we go. Now just specifically jealousy. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. We saw that in chapter 16 and talked about that. And he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him. Listen to this. Twice. Oh, I love that. Saul, <laughs> Saul was afraid of David. Why? Because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that, he had great success. He stood in fear for all of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. So interesting, right? Uh, remember, David, we saw that in chapter 16, he was brought in to play the lyre and play music for, for Saul when he got in these weird moments. We kind of looked at this distressing spirit that sent upon him, chapter 16, go back a couple weeks, we missed that. But the same thing's happening to him. You know, David was once the cure for that, and now he seems to be the cause of that distressing spirit in his life. Like, he's like, I can't stand this guy. And he picks up a spear and he goes, maybe I can pin him to the wall. I love his tone of his thoughts. Maybe I can pin him to the wall. He throws it at him. It says, David evaded him twice, which I just love, because who goes back? right? Who goes back? I'm sorry. If I'm like trying to help someone like, hey, dude, I love you. Someone tries to kill me. I'm probably not going to go back. David goes back. That's just David. I don't know how to explain that. Other than like, I'm going to work. I love this guy. I'm going to be loyal to this. And we're going to see David's strong loyalty to Saul. It's unbelievable. It makes no, absolutely no sense. And we'll look at that in more, more weeks. But I love this. He tries to kill him twice. And then he realizes, I can't, I, like, what if I do kill him? Or what if I do demote him? Like, what if I do actually, the people will, will freak out. So I'll make him a castle over a thousand. And you see him like hoping that he would die in battle in some way. Maybe he'll die in battle. I'll still have him in some position of authority, but just not in my house. I can't even be around him anymore. I mean, the jealousy is another level. Actually, in chapter, or in verse eight, listen, it says this. It says, Saul was very angry. This word angry, we'll put up here, it just means to burn within. Basically, like, his stomach just, have you ever been around someone? You're like, oh my gosh, right? That's not good. But if you've been around someone, you're like, it just hurts. It hurts. Saul's anger was to another level. It's crazy how often jealousy and anger are associated with one another. It's also really interesting when you do kind of follow this thread, he had a fear of David because the Lord was with him. He had this this awe-like fear of David. It's crazy how jealousy and fear go hand in hand. Maybe you fear something because in reality you're jealous of it. Uh, Maybe you you see this idea in, in different ways kind of play out in your life, but you see this happening to Saul specifically. And here's what we see over and over again, by the way, it's three times it's mentioned, just how successful David was. He's looking at David's success and man, it's just doing something to his heart. Verse five, David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. Verse 14, David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful all of him. He's just watching success after success. He's watching him go, man, he's doing it again. And it's just creating some crazy jealousy in him. You know, this is something I don't know if we do talk about a lot, but I think we all face, which is just jealousy on some level. 
maybe, again, you're seeing someone else's successes or you're coming to terms with your own failures. And rather than maybe being happy for someone else's successes, it's just eating you alive. And it's just only hurting Saul. I mean, by the way, David's success, here's where it stemmed from. Because I think this is so important. As parents, we want our kids or as friends, we want people, we want ourselves to want to be successful. Um, Why was he successful? This phrase just got me, because the Lord was with him. I think we need to change the definition of success, by the way. What is success? You know, honestly, what is success for your kids, for your life? What is, what is success? For you, it might be like a certain dollar. It might be a certain amount. It might be a certain kind of new position in life, like a, some sort of power or authority. What is success? I would, I would actually kind of just say, please change your defini- definition of success to just simply being the Lord is with you. What is success? The Lord's with you. Hey, if the Lord's with you, that's success. That led to his success. But that's, that's enough. The fact that the Lord's with you. And that's something that just Saul could not handle, man. He's seen that he's the, like his kingdom's diminishing. David's kingdom is growing fast. And again, we live in a weird moment, right? This is so just true. I feel like when you read this through our cultural context and our lens, I mean, we can look at people, we can look at more than just who, like, it's weird. Back then, you knew who you knew, like in your life. Now we know people we don't know. Now we have social media where we, 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 know, we know people we don't even know. And like, we look at life, we can't believe they have, like, you don't even know them. Why are you, why are you like jealous? Like, I don't know. They don't deserve it. Like, what, what is that? Like, we are so weird. We are so weird that way. Because we've access now, not just maybe a few people that we meet or see in our daily life, to hundreds, if not thousands of people. And we're constantly comparing, constantly getting bitter. Maybe we should get off social media. I don't know, that's just an idea here and there. Or maybe we should stop looking at other people's lives. Like, why is that not my life? Like, why am I not getting that? They don't deserve that. The idea of jealousy or envy, and I don't want to look at the nuances yet, but I want to look at, just talk about this. I think the idea of jealousy is almost like, it's sometimes, it's like self, based out of self-pity. It's almost like, I should have that. They don't deserve that. And it's really weird, the self-talk that comes through your mind when it comes to jealousy and how that plays out. Here's a few thoughts on this. A jealousy, I really do believe in a simple way, reveals our deepest loves in life. Jealousy reveals your deepest loves. If you find yourself being jealous of someone or of something they have or whatever, it's probably because you really love that thing and it's exposing your love. It's probably like, oh, wow, like you actually really love fill in the blank, being seen, being known, having wealth, having sex. And since they have it and you don't, it's just doing something to your heart. Again, it's like you're not wanting, like what is your deepest love? Is your deepest love in life, I just want to know God and have him know me. Like, and that's success. Then it changes like everything because it's like, it doesn't matter what you have or don't have. You're like, I have the most important thing in life. But it's crazy how this reveals the deepest loves. Here's what I want to point out actually. And this is really interesting to me. Maybe your translation says this. Look at verse 14. Some does not say success. Actually, I do believe this is a better translation and you can do your own research. It talks about his sex, success being wisdom. So look, look at verse 14. I'll put up the verse here. It says, David behaved, behaved wisely in all his ways and the Lord was with him. So not just his success, but actually... David's success was his wisdom. So stay with me. The Bible talks about like the opposite of wisdom is jealousy. This is really interesting. You think, what's the opposite of wisdom? Maybe not just being wise. James chapter three makes the argument that you either live life in a wise way or maybe in a jealous way. Listen to this, James chapter three. I'll put the whole text up here. Please stay with me because to me, this was so profound when you're like, I never made these connections. And I actually feel like when you read James 3, you go, I see David and Saul so clearly in this passage. James 3, 13. It says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, 
Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. It associates selfish ambition and jealousy as demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. When you read that, do you not see David and Saul? To me, it's like so clear. There are those who live by wisdom. He says, who is wise among you? And then there are those who live by selfish ambition and jealousy. He's basically comparing wisdom. The opposite of being, of being wise is being jealous. And it's a, it's a thought I really haven't entertained. It's almost the, the thought of, um, he's saying jealousy destroys your ability to think straight. Jealousy destroys your ability to make wise choices. What is Saul about to do? Make some terrible choices. He's taking spears. He's trying to kill David. He's going to start hunting David in a little bit. And the thing I want you to see is that jealousy, when it gets in you, you don't think clearly. You make really poor decisions. When you are filled with jealousy, looking at someone, you will not, you'll probably make selfish decisions, poor decisions. You'll probably pursue things you never should have been pursuing. You'll probably go after things you never should have been going after. When you're filled with jealousy, you start actually to make very unwise choices. That's what he's saying. Are you guys with me? This is David. He's not, he's peaceable, merciful. He's exactly what wisdom describes. Saul, he's just so filled with jealousy, he cannot think straight. And it's corrupting his heart and decision-making. I love how Tim Keller said this. Listen to this. He simply said, jealousy destroys your perspective. Jealousy makes you look at things and not see things as they really are. Jealousy distorts. Jealousy is the opposite of wisdom. Jealousy kills wisdom. Jealousy leads to self-deception. You see, this idea of jealousy or envy, however you want to put it, I, I think this is what it, it's really interesting. When you're jealous of someone, envy or jealousy says, I don't want them to have what they don't deserve. When you're jealous of someone, you're thinking, I don't want them to have, they don't deserve that. I deserve that. Now, the opposite of, of this is really interesting. When you look at Jesus, he doesn't say, I don't want them to have what they don't deserve. He goes, I want them to have what they don't deserve. The opposite is just crazy generosity. The opposite is you can rejoice with those who rejoice. You can say, well, I'm like, honestly, the fact that you have this, the fact that you rejoice, I want to join in with you. I think, how do you know you're not jealous? You can actually genuinely rejoice with those who rejoice. You, you can, when you say, you know what? You don't deserve that. And isn't that such a beautiful thing? That's grace. Everything in your life, in my life, is grace. There's something about that when you realize that. So when you see someone succeeding, you go, no, oh, that's grace. It's not because they're so smart. You're right. They don't deserve it. They, deserve, they don't deserve it just like I don't deserve it. And you go, wow, God, thank you for grace. This unearned, unmerited favor. I don't get it. But thank you. They might have it in that capacity. I have it in salvation. And that's more than enough. If they have it through success in business and life, whatever, but you know what? I have it in eternal life. That's the most important thing. Thank you. That's enough. There's just something really interesting about this envy, this jealousy that was just corrupting Saul's heart. And David is just being able to like carry on just very meekly, humbly. Hey, you want to spare me? I'll come back and play for you again tomorrow. That's crazy to me. That's insane. There's something in David that this, this didn't get to him. It's the anointed king who, go back, who goes back to the sheep. It's the anointed king who says, let me feed my brothers in war. But you're the anointed king. Yeah. There is something incredibly humbling about David, this wisdom from above. David truly had this wisdom from above. It's very unique. See, obviously Paul said later, love does not envy. And it's like, there's love. There just can't be any room for this. There's not gonna be room for this. Listen to this, Proverbs 14, 30. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. A tranquil, 
peaceful, content, filled heart, he says, gives life, but envy rots the bones. It's crazy what envy does to you internally. It's crazy how it turns your stomach into knots like it did Saul. It just led to his destruction. Here's the thing. Jonathan knew who David was and responded with, I'm with you. Here you go. Here's my robe. Jonathan responded the way Saul should have responded. Jonathan realized what God was doing. and says, I'm not going to fight this. God's doing this. Here you go. Here's my robe. Here's my sword. I'm with you. Jonathan didn't fight the Lord. Like he went with the wave in a sense. And here comes Saul. Uh-uh, not on my watch. He's going to try everything he can to stop David, but to no success. And we're just going to see like Jonathan responded the way this King Saul should respond. It's just, just jealousy led to absolute destruction in Saul's life. Here's the fourth point. And we're going to end with a weird story. And I just wanted to point this out in more of a, um, here's Saul's ways of trying to constantly get David to fall. Uh, we're going to look at the dowry of marriage. We're going to just read verse 17 to 30 and here. Like, what does that mean? I'll explain it. Verse 17, it says, Then Saul said to David, <laughs> here's like his plan. Here's my elder daughter, Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. Yeah, right. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. His true motive is revealed. By the way, look at verse 17. Look at this. I'm gonna like highlight it. It says, for Saul thought, for he thought. By the way, like, God knows our thoughts, right? I know we know this, but I don't like overlook this. The, the author is actually giving us commentary on Saul's thoughts. That's fascinating. The author's like, oh yeah, let me tell you what Saul thought. Okay, um, let me say this. Obviously, you know, the Lord knows our thoughts. And let me just say this. That's incredibly humbling. Like, that's terrifying. Let's be honest. That's terrifying. My thoughts, oh, my thoughts were on the screen at times. I'm like, oh gosh. Like, no. But here's the crazy thing. I actually want to point this out. You know what's so cool about that? God knows your thoughts and my thoughts and still loves us. And still says you're mine. Like, the fact that God knows our thoughts and is still willing to work with us blows me away. I don't want to point this out just like, hey, God knows your thoughts. You better watch out. I don't want to be like Santa Claus here. Like, okay, that could be used in a weird way. There is a humbling thought to that, absolutely. But God knows your thoughts and still says, and I love you. And the cross and Jesus Christ is still available to you. That's what's crazy to me. God knows our thoughts. So he, anyways, we're gonna read the story. His true thoughts and motive were, I hope he dies by the hand of the Philistines. Verse 18. And David said to Saul, who am I? Again, that humility, who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? I'm not worthy. But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite, I hope I said that right, for a wife. Verse 20, now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him. Oh my gosh, this woman sounds already intense. I know, oh, I know, Michael, she's going to be a snare for him. Oh, and that the hand of the Philistine may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now, just gotta be careful of the praise of it. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, uh, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, thus so did David speak. And Saul said, thus you, shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except, because we know you're poor, David, so no bride price, except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. 
Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when the servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went, and along with his men. And they killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, uh, welcome to church, uh, which were given in full number to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy. No, it's not David, but Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commander of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was greatly esteemed. Such a weird story. Let's just be honest. So he tries to give his first daughter. No, she's been off to someone else. Okay, Michael loves you. Here's my daughter, Michael. She's going to screw him up. And you're going to see, listen, she's interesting, right? At times, she's devoted to David. She's going to be married off to someone else, and then back married to David. Welcome to David and Michael's relationship. Uh, she mocks him for praising God with the, you know, the Ark of the Covenant coming back, and now she can't have children. It's just crazy. Their relationship's really unique. So he goes, maybe she'll be David's downfall. Uh, but she loves him. David takes it serious. He goes, who am I to be the king's son-in-law? Like, who am I to be that position? That's, that's crazy. David really does have a unique respect for the office of Saul. He has a unique view of that. Saul goes, listen, I know you're poor. I'm not going to ask for a price. However, I'm going to ask that you bring back a hundred Philistine foreskins. If you don't know what those are, children, you can ask your parents later, not right now. Um, <laughs> it's, really, it's, it's one of the weirdest stories, right? When you read it, like, what is, what is that? Now, obviously, he was hoping he'd die at the hand of the Philistines. That's what he's hoping for. Now, let me explain. A dowry is like the bride price. It's almost like this was common then and still common today. I actually have a friend who paid a dowry for his wife. He paid a bride price. A friend from here, South Florida, marries a a woman who's also from here, but she has family from the East. And they said, okay, you want to marry our daughter? Uh, What are you going to give us? And I remember talking about it because it's the funniest conversation. He's like, I remember talking to my future father-in-law, haggling down the price of his daughter. It was the weirdest thing. (laughs) This is like the opposite. He's like, the dad's like, I think 10,000. He goes, I'm just like a young poor guy. You want 10,000? I can can do two. (laughs) They're going back and forth. And it makes sense, right? It's kind of funny because you're like, I'm about to marry your daughter. Like, we could use extra money. Like, we could actually use that. Do you really want to be, do you want to start in a deficit? That's not going to be helpful. Like, he's having to, like, use logic and reason to downplay his bride price. All right, David doesn't do that. David doesn't go down. He goes, let me, let me increase it. You want 100? I'll give you 200. <laughs> now, this is interesting to me, right? That, again, that reveals a lot about David. It's the idea of, okay, I'll go the extra mile. You want me to go one mile? I'll go two. David's just a unique guy that way. And he, he does it. I just don't. Don't even think about the imagery. It's just like, hey, Saul, I got it. Just so weird. Sorry. Oh, so weird. Weirdest story ever. Now, here's what I do see with that story. This idea of the bride price. He's saying, pay a price. Like, this is a common thing, common idea. The, the scriptures kind of relay us being saved in some ways like a bride price. Meaning, when Jesus came to redeem or take the bride of the church, he paid a bride price. What was the bride price for us? It was himself. The idea was, I'm going to buy, in a sense, back. I'm going to redeem the, the, these, the people, this, this church. I'm going I'm to buy them back, but it's going to cost me my life. Like the bride price for us was the blood of Jesus. Here's what I want to leave with. It's 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20. For he says it this way, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You are not your own. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. He was saying there was a bride price for you. What was it? It was the most expensive thing, death of God himself. That's what he is. That's what it costs to buy, in a sense, the bride. Like, let me give it all or lay it all on the line so that I could be with you. 
the reason why I do think this is important, it's really interesting, back in that culture, Jewish culture, bride price, here's the son sitting with the father-in-law, um, I want to, you know, marry your daughter, okay, what are you going to pay, what's the dowry, here's the dowry I'm going to offer, if the father agrees, okay, great, the next thing they do is they take a cup, he sits with his future bride, and they share this cup of wine together, she can receive the cup, or she can dismiss the cup, I don't want the cup. After this covenant, after this bride price was like negotiated in a sense, it was like, all right, now let's sit with the cup. What they drink, it's finalized. Here's how one author put it. He says, in the course of the evening, the suitor, like the, 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 the guy who wants to get married, would pour her a cup of wine. That was the act of proposal. She would accept the proposal by picking up the cup and drinking of it. Or she'd push the wine away and thus reject the proposal. Obviously, the idea of this covenant that they're entering into between Michael and David, this bride price that's asked for, that seems kind of crazy. David's like, let me double it. I value, your, I value this. And the idea then next is like, okay, let's drink of the cup. This was like a common thing. And this is the idea for us, you and I. Jesus is now with the disciples and saying, listen, I'm going to give my life. Where I'm going, you cannot follow. But he goes, whoever drinks this cup and eats of this bread, goes, we'll have life. It's the idea of you take this cup, we drink of the wine, we, we eat of the bread to say, yes, we agree to this covenant. We agree that by your stripes we're healed that by the shedding of your blood, there's forgiveness of sins. You see, this leads us to our place of saying, David entered into two covenants, you could say, this day. It was with Jonathan and is with his bride, Michael. And what we see here is just a clear, you know, a clear sign of covenant. Guys, for the church, we enter into covenant with God because of the cup. We enter into deep intimacy and relationship because Jesus paid a price for us. And he says, do you want to drink of the cup? Do you want to agree? Jesus gave it all, all to him, my owe. This is the price he paid. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are his. My body is not my own. Your body is not your own. It's not so much I can do what I want. No. You are, God's like, I redeemed you at a price, the price of my body. And now he goes, now do you want to enter into this deep relationship? Take the cup. Listen, I just want to encourage you. We're going to take communion in just a second. It is a way for us to say, thank you, Jesus, that you paid the price for me. Thank you, Jesus, for the cup. That it's not just juice, but what it speaks of is how your blood was shed for my forgiveness, how your blood was shed for intimacy with you. And you drink the cup, you take the bread and say, Jesus, thank you that your body was broken so I could be restored and made whole. Thank you, Jesus, that I can have life everlasting because of your blood and your body that was, that was broken and shed for me. Thank you. Listen, we're just going to worship. I just want to encourage you guys as we like reflect, enter into this covenant with God if you have not. Believe on Jesus and you will be saved. Partake of the cup. Drink. Don't reject it. If you're not a believer and you say, I don't want this, this is not for me, don't drink it. Don't do it in a flippant way. We don't want that. But if you say, no, I believe in Jesus or I want to believe in Jesus, the cup is given to you, I'd say it's been freely given to you, freely take and drink. Yes, amen. We're going to play some worship. I'm going to ask when you guys are ready, take, eat and drink. I'll come back up here and close out, but we're going to worship, we're going to pray, we're going to thank God, we're going to drink of the cup. Let's do that. Father, we just want to say thank you. Thank you that, Jesus, you laid it all down for us. That you left heaven and came to earth. That in a sense, like Philippians 2 says, you stripped yourself of that royalty. That you laid down your life for us. That you entered into covenant with us. We just want to say thank you, Jesus. God, I pray that our hearts in the process of life would not be made corrupt through jealousy, through looking at what others have or what we don't have, but we can just say, Jesus, all of it is a gift. All of it is grace. And we just say, thank you. Help us respond to people's success like Jonathan, not like Saul. God, I ask if there's just any bitterness, any envy, any just compassion.
comparison that is just corrupting people's lives, that right now they'd confess that, that right now they'd surrender that over to you, that Jesus, we could just enjoy the cup, enjoy what you've done, enjoy this covenant, enjoy that you paid a price for us. So Lord, we love you. We thank you that we can just slow down, remember you, remember the cross, remember this covenant we have. And we just say thank you, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. Feel free to eat and drink when you're ready. You can stand, you can sit, you can kneel. We're just gonna worship the Lord and take communion. Let's do that now.